I'm guessing that many of you uh, here joining us for worship, whether in the space or you're at home, somewhere or other have an image of Jesus, maybe a cross or a crucifix or a nativity scene with baby Jesus in the manger or, you know, maybe some other image, you know, maybe that shoulder-length brown hair Jesus kind of gazing off into the distance. But I am also guessing that none of you have an image of angry Jesus with the whip of cords turning over tables in the temple. It's also probably not the image that we have in mind when we're singing Jesus loves me to little children. It's probably not very many people's favorite image of Jesus. But I have found that even angry Jesus is good news. Angry Jesus is good news because there are things in the world that should make us angry. The righteous anger of Jesus that we see in the temple is good news for those who suffer from injustice or economic exploitation. Thinking about the temple, you know what happens when it starts to rain at Disney World and you have to buy the raincoat there? Or when you, you buy the hot dog at the baseball game, suddenly the $1 gas station hot dog costs five. And that's what's taking place in the temple. Worship, as being commanded by God, is being exploited for economic gain. And as always, it's those who can afford the least who suffer the most. That's why John makes special note, if you caught that, about the doves. Doves were the cheap sacrifice in God's law that were permitted for the poor, who couldn't afford maybe a more expensive sacrifice like a ram or a goat. And now God's accommodation for the poor is being used to profit off of the poor. And it's actually not technically a violation of any law, but it clearly, clearly violates the intention of the law and the value it underlies it. And so Jesus gets angry. Jesus is not indifferent to the victims of violence, economic, physical, or otherwise. He's invested. Jesus is angry because he loves. He loves God and God's law and God's people. He's angry because he cares what we do, and what is done to us. And the Ten Commandments that we heard in our reading from Exodus that I expect are fairly familiar to many of us, the Ten Commandments come out of this same investment in our lives, this same love, this same caring, what we do to one another and to God. I think we often limit the commandments by making them into a, a simple checklist. 
And this is how, if you remember that story of the rich man in the Gospels, this is how he misunderstands the commandments as some sort of heavenly entrance application or internal confirmation requirement. Demonstrate that the Lord is your God by attending worship once a month. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy by praying five minutes a day. Check. Check. Have you ever been convicted of murder? No. Have you ever been convicted of coveting your neighbor's house? No. Well, sign below and you should receive your letter of heavenly acceptance in three to five weeks. No. The commandments are not laws that we follow to keep God happy. They're directions for how we can live happily together. This is the first function of the law. It's language that we use in Lutheran theology. The function, the law helps us to live peacefully together. And that's so much more than rule following. To give you a sense, Martin Luther in his large catechism, you may have had to memorize that small catechism if you went through uh, confirmation a number of years ago, but he's got a much larger one as well that covers the same content much more expansively. And in that catechism, he writes concerning the Ten Commandments. Those who know the Ten Commandments perfectly know the entire scriptures and in all affairs and circumstances, all affairs and circumstances are able to counsel, help, comfort, judge, and make decisions in both spiritual and temporal matters. They are qualified to be judge over all doctrines, walks of life, spirits, legal matters, and everything else in the world. Clearly, Martin Luther's understanding of the Ten Commandments is much bigger than just laws to be kept or rules to be followed. They're far-reaching values that guide our life together. So consider some of Luther's further interpretations of specific commandments. You shall not make yourself an idol. Luther writes, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God and an idol. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. Now, I expect that there aren't any of us who have little idols set up anywhere in our homes. But read in this way with Luther, we're invited to consider, are there other things that we actually trust and depend upon more than God. Ourselves? Money, our country, governments, anything. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. Or the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. This commandment is violated not only when we do evil, Luther says, but also when we have the opportunity to do good to our neighbors, but fail to do so. Just note how broad that application is. 
unless we think that, that Luther's just really out there, remember how Jesus expands that commandment to include anger and any sort of insult of others. The Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Luther writes, rather, we should use our tongue to speak only the best about all people, to cover the sins and infirmities of our neighbors, to justify their actions, and cloak and veil them with honor. My goodness. Is there any other commandment in the world today under as much attack as this one? In this world of social media where facts and truth are so distorted and questioned and lies so easily spread that it sometimes feels like we're living in completely different worlds depending upon where we get our news from. And certainly there are very few people inclined to justify the actions of those they disagree with. Or thou shalt not steal. Luther, in his expansive interpretation, writes, Thievery is the most common craft and the largest guild on earth. If we look at the whole world in all its situations, it is nothing but a big, wide stable full of great thieves. Luther had a flair for the dramatic. But he's applying the commandment to all manner of inequitable economic exchange. It's consistent with Jesus' anger at the temple practices. And it might lead us to question an economy where maximum profit is the unquestioned goal, regardless of what it does to those who can't afford their basic needs. I know some of you have had these commandments memorized for like the last 70 years or so, ever since you were made to stand in front of you know, the congregation had the terror of God instilled in you as you had to recite them in front of everybody. And my invitation is to dust them off, dig into them, and discover the relevance when we move beyond the simple literal interpretation to get at the underlying value, the spirit of the law. Or maybe the spirits in the law. This is what Jesus is doing in the temple. Going beyond the letter of the law, which is technically mostly being followed, but going beyond the letter of the law to get at God's concern beneath the law. In the preparation for affirmation of baptism course, under our lesson on the law, I asked participants to find a biblical law that they don't think is relevant for us today. It's not hard. Just read the book of Leviticus. My point, however, is that just because we won't be sacrificing any doves in worship, right? No doves in worship. It doesn't mean the law can't still offer some sort of direction for us. That law, for example, might invite us to consider 
whether we have any congregational practices that exclude the poor or privilege the wealthy. Perhaps, however, some of you rule followers already see the difficulty here. This approach allows us to discover meaning and relevance in scriptures we might otherwise cast aside, but it requires interpretation. And interpretation means uncertainty and disagreement. If there isn't one clear, correct interpretation, how can I be sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to? You can't. And I know that idea is probably a little horrifying for some of us. Not only can we not always keep God's law, we cannot know for certain whether we are or not. And this is the desperation of our situation. The law reveals sin but cannot fix it, Paul writes to the Romans. And this is the second function of the law in Lutheran theology. The law reveals our sin, helping us to recognize our guilt and our need for a Savior. Because we can't check the boxes, keep the rules, meet the requirements, or even know for sure what the requirements are. And so Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Its commands are relevant, but its requirements are fulfilled. He's saying we are free of the boxes, the checklist, the entrance requirements, and all of the corresponding expectations that this is what a Christian is supposed to look like. We are free because Christ has checked the boxes for us. The requirements have been met. The letter of heavenly acceptance has already been sent. The law tells us what we should do. The gospel tells us what God has done for us already. And as Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. That doesn't mean, however, that God is finished caring about us caring about our life together, what we do to each other, when we are hurt, and when we hurt others. God cares because God loves. And so I fully believe that God continues to be angered by violence and injustice in the world. We're freed from, freed from fulfilling the requirements of the law. But the law continues to be needed as a guide because human relationships continue to be complicated, confusing, and contentious. But again, God cares about them. Cares that they're healthy and fulfilling and life-giving for all people. And yes, the law itself can be confusing, even as it's trying to help. It can be uncertain. 
in its interpretation. But Jesus breaks it down for us. Ask yourself, is this loving? Loving God. Loving your neighbor. Even so, we will still find ourselves at times uncertain. What is the loving thing to do in this complicated situation? But thanks be to God, we are not saved by our imperfect love of one another, but by God's perfect love of us. Amen.